Let's join together in a word of prayer. Father, I come before you now in the name of Jesus, and I uh, just want to lift each of these requests up to you that were made this evening and others that may be on people's hearts. Um, I pray for uh, health and strength and life just to uh, overflow. Lord Jesus, you promised to to give us that overflowing, that abundant life. And uh, I just pray that we're able to receive that from you. That gives us the motivation that we need to do all of the physical tasks uh, that uh, that are before us. We want to serve you. We want to honor you. And uh, I just pray that you'll give us that, that strength, that you will shelter us and keep us safe from harm and from illness. And uh, I pray for our brother who is uh, looking for a place to, to live and uh, for your plan for him. And I just pray, Father, that uh, you'll work with his heart and help him to uh, Help him to get his stuff back and help him also to be forgiving where he's lost that. And I pray that you will convict those or the one who has taken that. And uh, so I just thank you and I praise you that you're a good and loving God. You care for us. Um, you, don't, uh, you don't hold stuff against us. If we confess our sins, you're faithful. Um, because Jesus died for our sins, you're also just. And you will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And because of that, uh, we can be forgiving to other people and uh, we, can, uh, we can care for them even when they have shown themselves not to be loyal or shown themselves not to be trustworthy. I pray that you'll open your word up this evening and uh, pray that our hearts will be receptive. Um, help us to understand uh, that uh, this life is a test, but uh, you've given us the strength to pass the test. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's take a look at this. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we'll aim to try to get through that uh, tonight. I'll go back up to verse 7. And uh, if uh, we're able to, then we'll get completely to the end of the chapter. If not, we'll do verses 12 through 19 next week. So, um, in our time, it probably is easier to accept this statement, the end of all things is at hand. But consider that Peter said that 2,000 years ago. So that makes for some difficult understanding if you consider that they really believed Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And Jesus didn't come back in their lifetime or in many subsequent lifetimes. So that's been difficult for some people to receive. It's been difficult for some people to understand, but we need to always be living in the light of this reality that the Lord could return at any time. So I like this. Um, one time I, uh, uh, I had a, I think I had a theological professor um, or it might've been a commentary that I read, but instead of thinking of the end of time as we're moving directly toward this point. I'm walking straight forward toward this point, okay? So let's say that the edge of this stage right here represents the end, right? Okay, and so 
a lot of times we think of it like this. We think, well, we're walking toward, time is moving this way, we're moving toward the end of time, and then, boop, we're going to step off, right? Now, certainly, I think that that is uh, perhaps a logical way to consider your lifetime, right? All of us have a lifetime. We don't know how long that's going to be. Um, and, uh, you know, it could be 50 years, it could be 75 years, it could be 95 years, it could be 105 years, okay? But you're walking along and then that ends. But I like what one professor said, the perspective really for us when we consider um, the return of Jesus and what we would say the, is the imminent return of Christ would be more like this. I'm walking along the edge of the end at all times. Does that make sense? The end is right here, and I'm walking along. So ever since the first century, we've been walking along the edge of the end of time. And at some point, Christ is going to interrupt that. But we've been at the edge of the end of time for 2,000 years. Now, that can seem like a tremendous amount of time to us, right? If I, if I compare my lifetime, my lifespan to 2,000 years, then that seems like a very, very long time. Um, there are those that are very literal in their understanding of the creation account, and uh, they would like to believe and teach, they do teach, that the earth is somewhere in the vicinity of 6,000 years old. But there's no scientist that would hold to that. According to scientific evidence, the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Now, that doesn't fundamentally disagree with the creation account because the creation account is not trying to teach us that the earth was created in six 24-hour periods. It said, and there's, it says again and again, and there, is, there was evening and there was morning and a day, right? And the word for day in Hebrew is the word yom, okay? Um, if you've ever heard uh, of uh, the... the uh, Hebrew holiday or the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. Have you heard of Yom Kippur? Okay. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. Now, in that case, that Hebrew word Yom is being used to reference one single day. In Hebrew thinking, the day begins at sundown and ends at sundown for us the following day, right? We follow a different uh, idea the it's really kind of strange if you think about it that the next day begins essentially in the middle of the night, you know, at midnight and now, oh, it's the next day. Oh, the Hebrew concept kind of makes more sense, really. You know, at sundown, you can mark, okay, now we're going into the next day. But let's understand that the way they used that term day is very similar to uh, how we would use it in our day. Now, the way I just used that, in our day, Am I referring to a 24-hour period? I say, in our day, we would do this, and, or, or we, would, we would do things this way. Or back in my day, we did this and we did that. Am I referring to that I had a 24-hour period sometime in the past that's my day? What am, I, what am I referring to when I say that? My time. It's an, it's an, uh, an undefined period of time, but it is a period of time. It's just not defined as 24, 36 hours, or 30 years. 
So in the case of the creation account, um, we're looking at this idea that God created the heavens and the earth, and then he unfolds that creation. He shows it to us in these six days of creation, right? Now, I'm not going to go into great detail, but there's signals there that would indicate to us that God is not trying to give you the exact order of creation. One of the primary signals is the sun, the moon, and the stars do not show up until the fourth day, right? But scientifically speaking, we know that stars, that's our sun, is a star, were in existence before planets, for quite some time before planets. In fact, the, some of the material that stars produce is necessary for a planet, right? So what we're looking at in Genesis is we're looking at a visual presentation, a visual representation. It's phenomenal language. Now, you've heard that term before, right? That's phenomenal, all right? But it really just means visual. And much of the scripture is like that because I can take Genesis and I can relate the creation account to Crystal, who's, she five now? Six, Six. okay. Gosh, I think she was four when you started coming. Um, But I can sit down and talk to Crystal, uh, you know, about the creation account, or I could sit down and talk to an astrophysicist or a cosmologist because it's a way of visualizing this. It's not an effort to uh, to tell us how God created the heavens and the earth. It's showing us that God created the heavens and the earth and why he created the heavens and the earth and what he thinks of it, how he values it. Now, why did I go into that detail when it's obvious that the scripture here is talking about the end of all things? Well, I want you to consider something mathematically. And I did do the math on this. I've done this a couple of times. And I actually uh, texted Craig with these numbers and he's the math teacher. He teaches well, he's an assistant principal now, but he taught calculus for many years and he validated these figures for me. If we compare 2,000 years as a percentage, as a portion of the age of the earth, now if the age of the earth is 6,000 years, then 2,000 years is obviously one third of that, right? 2,000, 4,000, 6,000. So then it does, if the earth is 6,000 years, it does seem like Jesus has been waiting for quite a while. But if the earth is, as scientists say, 4.5 billion years, okay, then 2,000 is 0.0000000444 and a series of fours, of 4.5 billion. To give you an idea of what a small fraction that is, as 2,000 is, as a portion of, or a fraction of 4.5 billion, it's an infinitesimally small fraction, eight hours is to 2,000 years, roughly, okay? It's actually... Uh, I got it, 7.792 hours. So seven, eight hours is to 2,000 years as 2,000 years is to 4.5 billion. Now, if you think of it that way, 
then 2,000 years doesn't seem that long at all, right? Now, if we go to the scripture um, in Peter's second letter, and, and Miss Mary uh, indicated to me that she's been reading in 2 Peter, um, this is what uh, the Lord says through Peter in 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's goal is for everybody to be able to reach repentance. So now let's look at the way Peter has it here. If to the Lord a thousand years are as one day, how many days have gone by? Two. Well, that's not much time at all, is it? Right? Jesus rose on the third day, and we're actually crossing over into the third day, so maybe we ought to get ready, huh? It's something to think about. Now, let's revisit that verse. The end of all things is at hand. We're walking along the shore of the end of time. If you consider now, I didn't calculate. I calculated this according to the age of the earth. According to scientists, the universe, the universe now is almost 14 billion years old. That means 2,000 years is nothing. I mean, it is literally a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. It's a very, very, very small portion of that. I don't know if that helps you. I'm looking at your faces and I don't know that it does. But it does help me because I, I want to know that, you know, we're not just waiting around and Jesus isn't going to come back. No, we just need to have a different view of time. Now, I have... Uh, said this, this is a standard uh, uh, comfort that I offer people at funerals. Um, when we lose somebody, we miss them. It hurts our heart, right? And the closer you are to that person, the more you feel the loss. And long after other people have, you know, kind of gotten over their mourning and are not thinking about that person every day, if this was someone very close to you, then you feel that loss regularly, right? So two years can go by and you still feel it. 10 years can go by and you still feel it, right? But I often tell people, if this person was a believer, if this person was a Christian, yes, we are comforted by the reality that they're in the presence of God, but I try to help people understand they're in God time. So that means that, so our brother Vernon, that's uh, the last funeral that I did, and he went into the presence of the Lord in mid-March. So we've been missing him for some months now. But what I would tell you is he's not missing you, and he's not missing me. Because he's in the presence of God, first of all, but secondly, he's in God time. If a day is as a thousand years, 20 years is nothing. 30 years is nothing. 50 years is nothing. 100 years is nothing. It's nothing, literally. If 50 years go by and then you pass away and you see Vernon, it will be like he just got into the presence of the Lord. He's kind of checking heaven out and he turns around and then you're there. So you've been missing him for 20, 30, 40 years, but he hasn't been missing you. Anybody ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? The, the children's books, all right? Really, really great books. So these kids, the, the first book uh, that was written that he wrote is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And 
then he, he kind of goes back and forth in time as he writes the books, right? There's kind of a good reason for that. What happens is they're in this house and they go into this, they call it a wardrobe. We, you know, most of us don't even know what that is, right? It's basically a closet, but it's, you know, a closet that's built as a huge cabinet, right? And so it's got all these coats and everything. And these children go in through this, you know, this wardrobe, they're playing hide and go seek or something like that. And they push through the coats and suddenly they're in this winter wonderland. They're in a completely different place. Well, the whole story goes by, and I would, I would just recommend the story to you. It's wonderful. It's got Christian symbolism, and um, there's a witch, and there's Aslan the lion that, you know, defeats the witch, and all of these things happen. The children grow up. They become kings and queens in this completely different land called Narnia. And then one day, after they've been kings and queens, and they've been living for years and years and years, they go riding back, and they notice this, this iron lamppost. And it, that iron lamppost reminds them that when they first came into Narnia, that's where they came in. And so they get off their horses and they walk up to the lamppost and suddenly, boom, they fall back through the wardrobe and they're back in the house and they're back children again. And no time has passed at all in our world. Are you understanding this? Right? So this helps me to look at a verse like this and say, you know what? We don't need to be saying, oh, it's in 2,000 years, Jesus has to come back, he's going to come back at all. No, God time is different than your time and my time. We need to start thinking some God thoughts, right? And if we can start doing that, then I think that we can begin to understand what the response to that should be, right? Um, in verse 8, uh, he says, so we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers, right? Um, I'm sorry, that's still, that's still in verse 7. Um, that's his response. I, when I, when I uh, pasted this in my notes, I didn't paste the verses, but I've got it over here. Um, so he says, the response to the end of all things being at hand is being self-controlled and sober-minded. So we need to be serious. But he says, for the sake of your prayers. You know, it's interesting when we get worried, when we get panicky, when we get angry, uh, when we get confused, it actually interferes with our, our prayer life, all right? I like um, Isaiah, I think it's 26.3. He says, uh, it says, the, the prophet says, uh, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast because it is stayed on you. Right, I memorized it in an older translation, right? Who, whose mind is, is at rest, at peace, because it's focused on you. When you get panicky, right? Pastor Craig was up here last night. Uh, we had our karate kids in here. And, you know, we'll do all of our jumping jacks. We'll do 100 jumping jacks. And, you know, some of these kids are, are not out exercising, perhaps. And uh, so uh, if you don't exercise regularly, 100 jumping jacks will get you winded, Right? And so, believe it or not, in karate, one of the things you learn is how to breathe. Breathe in, and we'll, we'll raise our hands. And breathe out. You've just got to learn to calm down and breathe. But prayer is like breathing. That's what uh, John Wesley said. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, the Methodist Church, 
which I think he would be rolling over in his grave right now if he saw what had become of many Methodist churches today, how they've departed from the Bible and departed from the gospel. But there's some very, very solid, uh, good gospel-oriented and, and good practices that come from Methodism and John and Charles Wesley. And one of those things is regular prayer, having a, a, a consistent prayer life. So just like you concentrate on breathing, if you're freaking out, you're panicking, right? You're upset. I mean, people can make you so upset. I don't know, that's, that's my anger, but when somebody just makes me so ridiculously angry, um, I typically don't lash out at a person. I just get so upset, but I, it's like I, you know, if I'll see red, literally. Like, and that's probably an indicator that your blood pressure is going up. But what you've got to do is you've got to slow down be serious about offering that up to prayer, right? Don't think of prayer as an afterthought. Don't think of prayer as, well, I can't do anything, so I might as well pray. No, it needs to be my first line. It needs to be the first thing that I do that I pray, not the last thing that I do. Oh, well, if I'm not in control, I'll just pray and let God be in control. No, I want God to be in control of me, and that's what this says. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, Self-control is also a fruit of the Spirit. So when I breathe in in prayer, I'm being filled with the Spirit. All right? Inspiration. I am being infilled with the Spirit. So that when I breathe out, when I speak, expiration, then it is Spirit-driven action. It's not just me doing whatever I think I ought to do or ought not to do, all right? Um, and being sober-minded in our, our day, I think, it doesn't mean don't uh, enjoy a joke on occasion, but sometimes humor can get very dark and dirty, can't it? Uh, there, there, are, there are a couple of comedians that I, that I kind of like because overall they're, they're just funny and they're reasonably positive. I mentioned, I think, on Sunday, Jim Gaffigan, and, you know, he, he traipses down some territory sometimes that I'm not real fond of, kind of skirts along the line of blasphemy at times. Um, but he's a Catholic, and I think he's a pretty regular, you know, uh, attender of Catholic Church, um, which is to say that he is overall respectful um, of, uh, of uh, Christ and church and so forth. But on the whole, I mean, you know, he's a, he's a funny guy to listen to, and I enjoy uh, an occasional laugh, but that doesn't mean that I, I don't have a sober mind. I don't have a serious, anytime I'm watching anything, if I'm watching a movie, if I'm watching a comedian, if I'm listening to a song, be it a secular song or a religious song, I want to relate that to my Christian faith. I want to relate that to life. I want to see what the Lord is trying to say to me as the result of that. Okay. Um, right. Then, uh, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that's verse eight. Now, that doesn't mean that love, your love of somebody else forgives their sins, but it does mean that your love of someone else enables you to forgive their sins. If you love somebody, then even if they have wronged you, it doesn't mean you're going to justify what they've done but it does mean that you will be able to be right with that person again. It does mean that you will be able to forgive them. 
Forgiveness is not saying, hey, don't worry about it. Hey, you stole from me, don't worry about it. Uh, you lied to me, ah, don't worry about it. Uh, you punched me in the mouth, ah, don't worry about it. That's not what it means. It means what you did was wrong, but I'm not going to be the judge. I'm not going to hold it against you. As Christ has forgiven me, so I am going to choose to forgive you. That's an act of love. So in the end, we have to evaluate the reason that we have relationships with people. And oftentimes, our reasons are expedient. They're self-serving. I have a relationship with somebody because it's good for me in some way. And as soon as it's not good for me anymore, then I toss them aside like old clothing. Well, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore because you're not serving me anymore. You're not making me feel good anymore. All right? What, what you did for me in the past, uh, it, it's not good enough anymore. You know, what have you done for me lately, so, so to speak? But if I love a person, I treat them as a person. I treat them as someone who is made in God's image. So um, I may choose to hang out with somebody more often because I enjoy their company, certainly. But I choose to love someone by doing what is best for that someone. And what is best for someone is not always what they're going to enjoy. And those of you that uh, have had kids or taught children will understand that. Kids want all kinds of things. And if you don't give them what they want, then they typically will throw a fit or two, right? They want, they want the candy. Uh, you know, they want the toy. Uh, they want to stay up really, really late. They don't want to go to bed. And these things are not always in their best interest. So a lot of times you've got to disappoint them and you've got to discipline them and they don't like it. But what you're doing is what's best for that person. And that's how we need to treat one another. So uh, love covering a multitude of sins doesn't mean that love justifies sin. It doesn't mean that you and I are able to forgive sin, but we, are able to, we will be able to forgive someone from sinning against us. And this next one is, uh, um, I think, pretty appropriate for our time period. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. See, I can show hospitality for a short period of time, but then I start grumbling, usually within myself, you know. Not everybody knows how to be a good guest. Do you know what I'm saying here? Okay. Some people take advantage of being a guest. In fact, there's another comedian. Uh, I haven't uh, listened to him in about a month, but his name is Sebastian Maniscalco, and he's I had to memorize his name because it's kind of hard. It's a Sicilian Italian name. But anyway, he's actually pretty funny. And uh, he waited quite a while before he got married. Uh, and uh, so I think he didn't get married until he was like 40. And uh, he was talking about the differences between him and his new bride. So this has been several years ago after he had just recently been married. And, you know, he, he just talks about how hospitable she is. And one of her friends came over to their house and he said, and this friend of hers, she just walks over to the refrigerator and opens it. And I just, ah, 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 I, I had to walk away. I had to walk away. She, she just, you know, walks in his house. Well, she'd been 
a friend of his wife in the past. And, and so they just had a way with one another where it's like, oh, you know, Mikasa, Sukasa, you know, whatever. And this guy's like, uh, 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 uh. But, you know, he, he was nice about it. He said, and then he said, I had a bowl of cherries in the refrigerator. I'm trying to do my Italian accent, so forgive me if it's not that good. He said, I had a bowl of cherries in the refrigerator. And he said, I already cleaned them and I had them all ready for me to eat. And she took the bowl of cherries out and started eating them. He said, I had to leave the room. Some people don't know how to be a good guest. And so it's easy to get frustrated, you know? And, and at first the grumbling is usually, you know, it's down here. And, and then that leads to resentment and whatnot. You need to be hospitable, but you need to know your limits because you don't want to get into a situation where you're trying to show hospitality and you know that this is just cross lines. And now you're, you know, you're going to be so angry with the person that you can't show hospitality to them in the future without being hostile. Hostile hospitality is not hospitality, right? So, but that's the other thing. Sometimes people don't understand they're a guest, but after they come to your house so many times, they should learn that they need to start participating, right? They need to start, maybe they need to start picking up after themselves. Maybe they need to start cleaning up. Maybe they need to start... Uh, you know, if they come over to your house and drink your milk all the time, maybe they need to think about bringing some milk next time, right? You know, I mean, it's just, it's a matter of uh, uh, thoughtfulness and so forth. But as for you and I, I think that it is wise for us to listen to the scripture and understand that showing hospitality is, um, is very biblical. And by the way, it's very much a part of uh, ancient Middle Eastern culture. It's a very, very big deal. If, if someone were, you know, left without a place to stay, they didn't have a lot of hotels back then. In fact, in the scripture, when it says that there was no room for Jesus at the inn, it's not a word that means a hotel. We always kind of think of it that way. But it, it means a guest room in a home. Now, there were, uh, there were inns back then, but in Bethlehem, there might not have been an inn, like a commercial inn. This is probably somebody's house, right? And so what it amounted to was, uh, you know, they went to Bethlehem and later they are found at this house when the wise men come. Now, we always see the, uh, uh, you know, the beautiful creche, the manger scene, and the wise men are there, and I set them up, and you know, and I do that as well. But the wise men didn't come until probably a year later, seven months to a year later, right? And how do we know that? Well, it says that Herod wanted to kill the babies from how old down? Two years down, based on when the wise men said that they had left to travel from their distant country. So basically, that gives us an idea that this could have been months later, because that's how long it would have taken them to travel, or this could have been a year later, a year and a half later. But the other thing, in Matthew, the wise men don't find Jesus in a manger out, uh, you know, in a cattle stall or, a, a, you know, a, a feeding, put Jesus in a feeding trough for a uh, for sheep or anything like that, they find him in a house, right? So the term that is used, the Greek term that is used, kataluma, it, it means a guest, a guest room. 
So it's likely that they went to Bethlehem, which uh, is the, uh, the family home of Joseph, right? That's why they were called back to Bethlehem. They go to this house that perhaps was owned by relatives, but there were already people that were staying there. Further, uh, Mary is very pregnant and there would have been no privacy for them in this guest room in this house. So rather than seeing the quote-unquote innkeeper as, as being this you know horrible person, this was somebody who offered them a place to stay where they could have privacy. Now, that doesn't make it any more luxurious for Jesus to be born in essentially a barn and laid, you know, on hay in a, in a feeding trough, but it does help us to understand that. What I'm trying to get at is that these people were very, very big on hospitality, and most Americans are not. It, you're lucky if you know your neighbors. But we're just not terribly neighborly or hospitable, but uh, we need to learn to do that. In fact, it is something that can be a very, very powerful testimony to people when you are hospitable. So there's a lady, uh, and I had the magazine last week. Fortunately, I took a picture of uh, the introduction to this article. Um, but uh, there's a lady named Rosaria Butterfield who was won to Christ as the result of hospitality. Let me read the introduction to this, uh, to this article. When Rosaria Butterfield responded affirmatively to a dinner invitation from a local pastor in Syracuse, New York, she considered it a prime research opportunity. It was the late 90s, and Butterfield was a professor of English literature and women's studies at Syracuse University, specializing in queer theory, a leader in LGBTQ rights, and an out, uh, in an out lesbian relationship, Butterfield was writing a book on the religious right and, quote, why they hated people like me, unquote. What she encountered instead of hate was the disarming hospitality of Ken and Floyd Smith. One dinner with them turned into hundreds as Butterfield read the Bible and began to wonder if God was real. Throughout her conversion, which she, which she terms a train wreck, she had a place at their table as she dealt with the fallout of her new faith. Today, Butterfield is a writer and speaker. She and her husband, Kent, practice hospitality on an almost daily basis, opening their home to their church family, their neighbors, and those in the margins of society. For Butterfield, hospitality is not about, quote, matching plates or even a skill for entertaining. Instead, it's welcoming the stranger as your neighbor, and if God wills, watching that neighbor become a part of the family of God. That's just, that's terribly powerful. Put your money where your mouth is. Christians talk and talk and talk about love. What are you doing about it? What am I doing about it? How are we showing that to people, right? So this is why verse eight is important. Um, verse nine, excuse me. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What does this mean? You have gifts that the Holy Spirit has endowed you with, imbued you with, invested in you. You may or may not be aware of these gifts. There are lists of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Uh, there are a couple of major lists in chapter 12. 
talks about us as the body of Christ, and each of us are like parts of a body, right? And we have our individuality, and we have our special specialization, right? But we're all a part of that one body of Christ, and so these gifts are like that. When you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. He gives you a new birth, and he invests you with gifts. Um, I have mentioned before in this church that prior to becoming a, a Christian, uh, I was a shy person. I didn't go out of my way to make new friends, to talk to people. Um, and I certainly would not have seen myself standing in front of an audience speaking to a group. In fact, in the early time period when I was a believer, um, I had a friend and uh, I mentioned him some years ago and another friend of mine did some research on him and I found out the friend I'm about to tell you about uh, passed away some years ago in a house fire, which is saddening to me. But uh, this friend, was his name was Randy. Uh, Randy Moody was his name. And we were very competitive. We lifted weights, right? I bought a, uh, I got my own job, uh, was a salesman making a good amount of money. So I bought a Camaro and it was a two-year-old Camaro and I'm a high school kid. I'm a junior in high school and I'm driving a two-year-old Camaro. Um, I paid my own car payments. I paid my own insurance. I paid for my own gas, all nine, you know, whole nine yards. Randy got a Camaro. I had a cool stereo in my car. Randy got a cool stereo in his car. We were always competing with one another. But honestly, it was his example to me of Christian faith that showed me that a teenager didn't have to just walking didn't have to just walk around and act like a typical teenager. He was very well spoken. He was very intelligent. Um, he shared his faith. Now he was Church of Christ, so there was kind of more of a uh, you know, a five-step plan to getting saved and so forth. But he invited me, I remember, this is before I was a believer, he invited me a couple of times to uh, skating parties. They used to have these, these skating parties. You'd go to the skating rink and, you know, you would skate around. And then, I mean, it seemed weird to me. At the end of the evening, they would uh, have uh, a couple of leaders that would gather at the corner of the skating rink and everybody would skate up to that corner and sit on the floor and they would all start singing. Well, if you know anything about Church of Christ, they don't have to have instruments. They don't believe in using instruments in their worship services. They just sing a cappella, right? Now you think, wow, man, they're really missing out because our band is amazing and instruments are amazing. Their voices are amazing. They can just sing. They don't have to have a guitar anywhere. They just start singing and they all knew the songs. Nobody had little, you know, sheets and there wasn't a screen. This is a skating rink and they all just started singing and I'm just looking around like, whoa, you know, this is just, but he had a real faith. He had a genuine faith, right? Um, and so as a result of that genuine faith, that started pointing me toward Jesus, he was, a, he was a public speaker. This is something he knew that he wanted to be a preacher. And um, he was on the speech team at uh, our high school. Now, um, public speaking is actually something that is, it's a, it's a competition. And there are, there are different events, right? Um, I don't see a lot of schools around here that have major uh, forensic teams, that's what they're called. It's forensics, right? 
But um, we had a, a, a really good speech team at Thunderbird High School. And Randy did extemp, and ex, it's extemporaneous speaking. So what they would do is they would introduce a topic. So here's the event, and they would give the extempers, that's what we called them, they would give them 30 minutes to prepare. And they were to prepare a six to eight minute speech within 30 minutes. So they gave them, you know, basically like a, like a hat with topics in it. You pull the topic out of the hat and then you go prepare for 30 minutes. And then you, and in your particular round, there would be probably eight other, or you and seven other speakers, it'd be eight speakers. You would get up and you would give this speech that you just prepared 30 minutes ago, right? There's another event called impromptu. With impromptu, you draw a, a topic out and you have a total of seven minutes. You can prepare for one or two minutes and then you speak for four, for four or five, right? Uh, there's an event called oratory, which is persuasive speaking. And in this event, you prepare your speech before you get to the tournament. And it is a, a speech on some sort of a, a current topic that uh, takes a point of view and you seek to persuade people. Well, that was the event that uh, Randy did extremely well at as well. Uh, also, well, after I'd been a Christian for a short period of time and been exposed to my friend, I started getting this sense that I wanted to do that. So the pastor, uh, his name was Pastor Richard Jackson of the North Phoenix Baptist Church, I mean, he would preach, and it wasn't just that I was being moved by his preaching. I wanted to move him out of the way and get up and preach. I mean, I just really, oh, it just motivated me. That's just, you know, I didn't know how I was going to do it. But that's, I, you know, and it wasn't because I wanted to be in front of a big group of people. Now, you would think that that could be a reality, and that could have conceivably been a motivation early on because, you know, I wanted people to pay attention to me. I, I would have liked to have been a a famous uh, lead guitar player or singer or baseball player or something like that. But this was a different urgency. This was subsequent to me becoming a believer, right? And so it's evident to me now that that's because that's the gift that God wanted me to exercise, right? The gift of, of preaching. Oh, we would say prophecy, but then that sounds like yeah, I'm trying to tell you that I, I, I foretell the future. It's teaching and preaching. The gifts are teaching and prophecy. Prophecy is just speaking, foretelling the word of God. That's what it is, okay? It's not foretelling the future, although God did give words, messages to the prophets that foretold the future. That's not in the definition of prophecy, if that makes sense to you. So these are gifts that I recognize that I received after becoming a believer. I would not have wanted to do this before I was a believer. In fact, I took one of those, uh, uh, those tests, those career tests, those career assessment tests when I was in like, I think, eighth grade, right? And uh, at the top of the list was being a forest ranger. <laughs> That's about as far away from people as you can get. And I, I actually considered going to uh, NAU, Northern Arizona University, which is in Flagstaff. And I could imagine myself back then being in one of those big, you know, lookout towers that they used to have, uh, you know, before, I guess, satellites and everything uh, looked for forest fires. But, you know, these forest rangers would be up in this big tower looking for forest fire by themselves for months at a time. I was like, hey, that's fine with me. 
I'm okay with that. Now I think, wow, you know? Now that's not to say I don't like to be alone or anything like that. When Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't just radically alter your personality, but he does give you gifts, all right? So you do, if you have Christ, you do have spiritual gifts. And as you have received those gifts, then this scripture, verse 10, says, be a good manager of that gift. That's what a steward is. A steward's a manager, right? Think of a steward as somebody working in a restaurant bringing you a glass of, uh, you know, a bottle of wine or something, uh, the wine steward. But the, this word steward just means management. So you have these gifts, you need to manage them well. So let's think of it this way. I've made reference to the parable of the talents uh, a couple of weeks running now. Uh, the story, uh, when I read it a couple of weeks ago, I read it from the New Living Translation, and it talked about uh, bags of silver, right? Talent was a weight of money. And if you remember that parable, that story that Jesus told, the, the master gave each of his servants an amount of money. He gave one five talents, he gave one two talents, he gave one one talent. Isn't it an interesting coincidence that that term for a weight of money also is a homonym for a word in English that means what? A gift, a natural gift, a talent that you would have. Consider what these people did. Two of them invested those talents and doubled them, and one of them just buried it. I'm wondering how many people have natural gifts that came from the Lord or have supernatural talents, spiritual gifts, and they just bury them, right? I suspect that for Christians, the tendency is just to come to church and let the pros do everything. But notice, this is not just a speaker, all right? He says, if you speak, this is verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. An oracle is a burden from the Lord, right? That's, that's you, you really believe that that is the message that God wants you to speak, right? So even if you're just teaching a lesson, like I'm teaching this lesson, if you're paying attention, you notice that even when I'm teaching verse by verse here, I'm still always preaching. There's always a burden here. There's a desire for people, for me to get people to make changes, okay? Um, but notice it says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, it is easier for me and more enjoyable for me to teach and to preach than it is to serve, but I serve all the time. Um, I don't mind being behind the scenes. I don't mind serving, but some serving is just tiresome. It's wearying. And that's why we need the strength that the Lord supplied. That's why I need to be serving with that motivation and not just because I like the person, right? I'm serving someone because I like them. No, I'm serving the church or I'm serving a person or I'm serving in an organization because I believe that that's what the Lord has led me to do and he will therefore empower me to do that, right? So I'm going to serve by the strength that God supplies. I'm gonna, I'm gonna reach down and not just pull myself up by my own bootstraps, but I'm gonna allow the spirit to fill me and to motivate me and to give me the strength that I need. Then he says, uh, continuing uh, in verse 11, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's why we do what we do. That's the end game for the follower of Jesus, to do everything to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, uh, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In Psalm 115.1, and I think I was reading this psalm while I was preparing this lesson last week, and so that's why I got a hold of this verse. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but, but, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So actually, no, I think I did look that up because I remembered that not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. That should be your constant prayer. Lord, I don't want the glory. I want you to get the glory, right? When someone gives you attention, when someone offers you thanks for serving, for doing something for them, there's, there's two extremes to avoid. One extreme is to just act like you deserve it, right? To gloat and to boast. And the other extreme is to be uh, so, quote unquote, humble that you refuse to receive it, that you can't receive their praise, that you can't receive that thanksgiving. But I think the proper way to accept someone's thanksgiving for service that you have rendered is to say, thank you very much. Praise the Lord. I do appreciate you expressing your appreciation for me, but praise the Lord. I, I want the Lord to receive the praise. Because you were used as the tool. You were used as the Lord's tool. It's okay to say thank you to that person. To me, it's almost disrespectful to the person that's offering you the thanks when you're like, oh, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. It's almost like you're slapping them down like they're doing something wrong, right? Now, this isn't someone bowing down before you and worshiping you or something. No, accept that, receive that, and then offer it up as an offering to the Lord. You know, thank you very much. Praise the Lord. I think that's the right way to approach that, okay? Listen to uh, what we read in Revelation as uh, uh, an example, the, the ultimate example of giving glory to God for all of this. This is uh, Revelation 4, 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Excuse me. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Notice that even at the highest levels in heaven, they're still constantly offering praise and glory to the Lord. That's the end game for us, folks, is that we offer praise to the Lord. So if I preach, uh, if I serve, whatever I do, I'm going to do that in order that the Lord gets the glory. Amen? All right. There's too much for me to try to continue on beyond this, so we're going to cut it off here and continue next week with verse 12.